One of the verses of the Bible I love so much is, uh, it says, God's mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. It's a great verse. I thought it may be nice to start uh, a new year with a test. Isn't that what you all love, love tests? So my test today is going to um, revolve around the acronym. Have you ever heard the acronym GOAT? G-O-A-T, which means the greatest of all time. So we're just going to give you a test in the GOATs, but we're going to use sports today. They're, of course, greatest of all time in many areas, but we're going to use sports. So here it goes. You have to shout out the answer. Here we go. The greatest baseball player of all time. Yeah, most people say Babe Ruth. That's what they say. Okay. Greatest basketball player of all time. Yes, they'd say Michael Jordan. Greatest boxer of all time. Oh, you're, you're going to get 100%. Muhammad Ali, they would say. The greatest football player of all time. <laughs> no, they would say Tom Brady. Yes, Tom Brady would be the one. He, he's, he's the GOAT. Okay, the greatest golfer of all times. Ooh, we got, got lots of them. Most would say Tiger. Tiger Woods is the greatest. Okay, how about this one? The greatest hockey player. You know, I didn't ask for who your favorite team was. I, I, Wayne Gretzky. Okay, and the greatest soccer player. Pele. Oh, good. Oh, you, you did great. Okay. Now, here's one off of sports. Who is the greatest civil servant of all time? You say, who gives a rip? It's like, um, who is the greatest bureaucrat of all time? You say, well, I don't really want to know who that is. Well, I know who that is. I don't think if you put onto the, uh, into any computer and you typed, who is the greatest civil servant who's ever existed? The greatest of all time, you'd probably come up with nothing. There would be nothing there. But I do know the answer, and I'm absolutely certain, 100%, that there's no one in the world who could disagree with me. It's impossible. There is one person who is without question, 100%, the greatest civil servant that's ever lived, and his name is Daniel. How do we know that? Well, we know, first of all, that he his, his competency was the greatest of anyone. Can you imagine a bureaucrat who is like, everything they do is right. And they have never once been accused or it, they have never once done anything improper. Their integrity is unblemished, perfect. And they were in the highest position of civil service for not one, not two, not three, but not four, but four presidents and a prime minister of another empire. Daniel was the top civil servant for four kings and two completely different em empires, one that conquered the other one. In human history, there's never been anyone even close to that. There's never been a civil servant who served at this position for four administrations, much less two different empires. There is no question on earth that the greatest civil servant that has ever existed, bar none, no, no peers, zero, is a man named Daniel. And it's him who we're going to turn to over the next number of weeks here at First Baptist Church. Now you might ask, well, why, why look at Daniel? Let me tell you why. First of all, because Daniel is one of the greatest human beings who's ever lived. 
You are all familiar with the phrase and I've, or the sentences. I've told them to you before. It's that famous quote of Lord Acton. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But most people forget the next line. The next line is this. Great men are almost always bad men. To become great, that means where people know your name and you, are, you, you do great things, whatever that means. There's hardly any person who's great who's good. Because you didn't get to be great by do, being morally good. You got to be good, great by doing things under the table and doing things that are, that are not morally right. So it's very rare in human history to find anyone who's great, that is, who's accomplished great things, who's also morally good, but there's a third category. And this one makes it even more unique. Someone who is great, who is good, and who is godly. There are very few people in human history who fit all three of those. Hardly anyone. Probably a handful of people who have ever lived out of, what are we at, about 14 billion people who have lived on this planet. Daniel's one of the only ones. He is great by every measure. He's morally impeccable so far as we know. And he's extremely godly. So godly that God himself sends a messenger, an angel, to tell Daniel that in God's eyes, Daniel is highly esteemed. This is one of the greatest human beings who's ever lived on this planet. That's one of the reasons we ought to study him, because that's a pretty good example. But there's another reason. Daniel lived in a pagan culture, a secular culture, as we would call it, a not Christian, not religious culture, and yet he was never corrupted by that culture. And even more than that, he ended up changing that culture in pretty profound ways. That's a pretty rare thing. Now, there's growing anxiety in America today among Christians as we live to, seek to live Christian lives in an increasingly post-Christian society. And so what do we do? Well, most Christians simply capitulate to the culture. The culture becomes our God rather than the true God. That's one alternative that actually most are taking. There's another alternative. Another alternative is you could try desperately to fight against the culture. But if you do, you're going to be, end up fighting, against, fighting a war you cannot win. You will not win. A third option, one that many take, is since the culture is moving in ways away from what the Bible says, let's separate ourselves into little holy enclaves. Holy huddles, you might want to call that. But guess what? They're never very holy. And in fact, over time, they become very corrupt. That's not a good option either. So what do you do? Ah, I tell you what we do. We follow Daniel. Because Daniel is one of the greatest examples in human history of someone who knew how to live in a world, in a secular world, without becoming part of the worldview and the lifestyle of that world. He's a wonderful person to watch. And we need to follow a third reason to study the life of Daniel is because Daniel lived in three countries that are in the news almost every day today. He lived in three countries. He lived in Israel, he lived in Iraq, and he lived in Iran. And they're in our newspapers almost every day today. So it's probably very, very relevant because where he lived is where we see very major events in the world taking place right now. Thousands of years later, 
Another reason to study the book of Daniel is because Daniel is the most important, I would suggest to you, prophetic book in the Bible. Daniel is going to be the main person in the Bible who is going to tell us what does the future look like. And it's what Daniel told us that Jesus picked up on when he was here on earth in what's called the Olivet Discourse. And it's what John tells us in the book of Revelation. But it all goes back to Daniel. He is the main person in the Bible who tells us what's, what's going to happen in the future. And some of what he sees is so terrifying that he can't get out of bed. And yet the end of it is so glorious, he can't even begin to comprehend how magnificent it is. So this is the one who tells us about the future. And so here we're going to turn to the book of Daniel, and I titled this particular message, In the World, But Not of the World. So I want to introduce you today in Daniel chapter 1 to the GOAT, the greatest civil servant, governmental bureaucrat, prime minister, if you will, the greatest of all time. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Daniel chapter 1, and I'm going to begin with a little bit of background to tell you a bit about this man named Daniel and the times in which he lived. Because all of us are affected a lot by the times in which we live. I, for example, and I'll bet a bunch of you here today, I grew up in the 60s. That's when I was in high school. And the 60s, especially 1968, was a very turbulent time. And a lot of who I am is probably shaped by the times in which I lived. The times when I came of age in the 60s. We, of course, now are in the many years after that. But let's understand the times in which Daniel lived. Daniel was born around the year 620 B.C. That was a time in the history of Israel when things were um, the best they had ever been. The king under whom he was born was a man by the name of Josiah. Josiah was the godliest of all the kings of Judah. One of the things that, that Josiah did is he, he asked some of his people to go into the temple and vacuum. Of course, they didn't have vacuums to clean it up. And they were in one of the storerooms of the temple. This is God's holy temple built by Solomon. They're in one of the storerooms, and guess what they found? A Bible. They didn't even have a Bible. They're worshiping God in a temple. They didn't even know why they're there. They found a scroll of the Old Testament. And they bring it to the king, and they open it up and read it. And he goes, oh, my goodness. We're not doing any of this stuff. So he changed everything in the country. They started to go back to what God had said they were supposed to do because he was so alarmed that they had drifted so far away from God, they didn't even have God's word anymore. And this is where Daniel was a little boy. So he grew up under this godly king by the name of Josiah. But when Daniel was about 11 years of age, in the year 609 B.C., King Josiah, who was a young man, only in his 30s, he went up to this place um, called uh, Megiddo. And there in Megiddo, he got caught in, a, in, a, in a, a pincer move between the Babylonians from the north and the Egyptians from the south, and he was killed. So Daniel's 11 years old, and his wonderful, godly, godly king is killed. 
and he is succeeded by his sons, and they are miserable wrecks. They're terrible. They're so terrible that in that battle, remember I said when the Babylonians came from the north and the Egyptians from the south? They met at a place called Carchemish, and the Babylonians wiped out the Egyptians. And they so badly wiped them out in Carchemish, they started to move south. And as they moved south, going toward Egypt, where did they have to go through? Israel. And as Nebuchadnezzar brought his armies through Israel, they surrounded the city of Jerusalem, and they conquered many of the surrounding towns. And they said to each town, We want your best and your brightest. Bring them to us now, or we will kill you all. And guess who they brought out? A 15-year-old boy named Daniel. And now he was taken by Nebuchadnezzar as a 15-year-old boy on a 700-mile trip from Israel to become a POW, a prisoner of war, in the city of Babylon. And that's where the book of Daniel opens. Here are the first words. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So, The book of Daniel is very easy to date. We not only can date it from the Bible, but we can date it from Babylonian records. We know with absolute certainty, 100%, that this took place in 605 BC. That's where it opens up. And it says, Nebuchadnezzar came. He surrounded the city of Jerusalem. He took some hostages, POWs, including Daniel, and he took some of the articles from the temple in Jerusalem. That, what would that mean? Well, in the temple, you had all kinds of very expensive things. You had golden menorah and all these golden um, vessels which, with which they poured water and, and wine and other things. It was full of gold. So Nebuchadnezzar, showing that he was superior to the people of Israel and his gods were superior to the God of Israel, he went into the temple and took some of the articles back to Babylon. That's where the book begins. And who's behind it all? Did you see? Who's behind it all? God. God delivered Israel into the hands of the Babylonians. Isn't that what it says? What? (laughs) That's mixed up. God's supposed to do the opposite. After all, the Jewish people are God's chosen people. Judah is the promised land. The temple is God's holy place where his glory dwells. But God delivered them into the hands of the Babylonians. Why? Well, and by the way, where is the capital of the Babylonians? Yes, that's the country. What's the city? Babylon. And where does the word Babylon come from? Babel. That's the Tower of Babel. It's the same place. So here, the place that was the centerpiece of idolatry back in the book of Genesis. God sends his people because of their blatant idolatry for hundreds of years. How many hundreds? 800 years they've been living in the promised land. 
God says, you have never obeyed me for 800 years. That's how patient he is. And finally, he says, okay, since you have taken idols instead of me, I'm going to send you to the place where idolatry had its birth, Babel, Babylon. And so Daniel now finds himself in a very, very strange place that he had never seen before. And he is going to face the pressure like hardly any human being has ever faced in the history of the world. Pressure to do what? Pressure to become a Babylonian. Now, why did Nebuchadnezzar do what he was doing? Why? Because he's a good leader. If you look at world history, Nebuchadnezzar is one of the greatest leaders in the history of the world. And this was his policy. He conquered country after country, people group after people group. And what he did is he would go into that people group and said, who are your best and your brightest? Where's the homecoming king? Who's the valedictorian of the class? Who's the smartest, the best athlete? He would take that person and they would bring them to Babylon and they would brainwash them. That was the policy. And then they would bring them as, as captives. They would then brainwash them secularize them, Babylonianize them, and then use them against their own people. Ooh, that's a bright policy. That's what he did. And this is what Daniel was supposed to be. Daniel is supposed to be a pawn of the Babylonians. And their process of making pawns is brilliant, brilliantly diabolical. Let's see what they do. Here's what happens. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. So this Daniel has a royal background. He's related, and he's, he's related by blood, they think, to Hezekiah and Josiah. He's related. He's royalty. Young men without any physical defect handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Let's go on. Is it? The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the, from the king's table. This is not McDonald's. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Let's stop right there. I'll give you a brief, very brief his, uh, Hebrew lesson. Simple. In Hebrew, the name of God is El. If you can leave the same slide on, that'd be great. The name of God is El, or Yah. El or Yah. Daniel's name, the word for judge, is Dan. Daniel's name means God is my judge, because Daniel's godly parents gave me him a name based after the God of Israel. God is my judge. That is his name. Then, um, he, then the next one, Hananiah. You see there? There's God's name. Mishael, God's name, Hazariah. All of them are named after the God of Israel. But look at the next slide. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, 
he gave the name Belteshazzar. If I can find you what this means, this means Marduk or Bel protect his life. So his name was changed from God of Israel as my judge to Bel, the God of the Babylonians. You protect his life. Then to Hananiah, he gave the name Shadrach. And, and, or or, or um, you know, Hananiah, he gave the name um, Hananiah. Let's see, to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to, to Mishael, and the other names mean this. Let me get Hananiah was given the name now, command, Obey the Moon God. That's his new name. Obey the Moon God. Mishael is given the new name, Venus is my goddess. And Azariah is given the name, I am the servant of the Babylonian deity. Do you see what they're doing? Do you see that? They take these names that were given after the God of Israel, and they change them to names honoring the gods of Babylon. That's amazing. It goes on. Let's keep going. Is the next verse, the next slide, is there another one? But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Let's stop there. Well, did you see what happened? Now, um, I don't know that you could possibly come up with a better scheme of changing one's way of looking at life than what Nebuchadnezzar came up with. Let's look at the facets of it. First of all, if you want to change someone's way of looking at the world, one of the factors that's most involved in that is when times are troubled. I told you I was a, a child of the 60s. One of the, the songs of the 60s was, the times, they are a... Oh, you people who are the... The times, they are a changing. Right now, we're living in a time in the history of this country when you could sing the same song. The times, they are a changing. When people live in times that are kind of strange, they're changing quickly. It's a time when many, many people lose or disregard their worldview and adopt the common worldview of everyone around them because it's, it's convenient because the times are troubled. Besides, not only were the times troubled, but Daniel lived in a society in Israel where his hero, Josiah the king, was gone, and now his sons are, are the kings, and they are miserably bad people. The religious leaders are bad people. There's hardly any good role models anywhere. And then he's thrust into a whole different country where the people are not following God at all. There was a rarity of good role models. Thirdly, there was political upheaval. As I said, growing up in the 60s, we had, of course, the, the, the Vietnam War. We had the, the resignation of President Nixon. We had the Watergate scandal and all of this. We wondered if the nation was going to come apart at the seams. And when you live in a society, a society like that where there's such political upheaval, it kind of breaks you away from your worldview and lifestyle moorings. That's what Daniel faced. And he lived in a time of religious decline because the very fact that his country and his was, was, went into exile and his, the temple was destroyed and the objects from his temple were taken to Babylon was a clear indication that the religion of Israel was on the rocks. It was going down. 
And when that happens, you become disappointed with God because you think, hey, God didn't come through for me. And when you think that God's not coming through for you anymore, your worldview is on very, very shaky ground. And then he was uprooted from home. Everything he knew, he was forcibly taken away from his family and his friends and his homeland and his culture and his peers and his language and his history and his religion and everything, his lifestyle, his dress, his food, all of it changed. And of course, when that happens, oh, you start to change. And besides, he's young. One of the best ways to change people's minds is to get them when they're young. One of the probably the most dangerous things that happen in our world today is at a very time in life when people are easily brainwashed, they're very vulnerable, they're naive, they're rebellious, they want to stretch their wings, they want to become independent, you put them in a society where they're exposed to people like Arioch, who is a professor at the Ivy League University of the day to change his worldview. And then, to make it worse, he, he was tall, dark, and handsome. <laughs> You say, make it worse. Yeah, that makes it worse. Because if you're bred for success, you will often compromise in massive ways to keep your money and to keep your success. And so actually being attractive and intelligent and at the top of your class is, in terms of a godly worldview, is a disadvantage. It's not necessarily a great advantage. And then he was brought from Israel to Babylon. Do you know what Babylon is? Let me tell you. Babylon was the largest, most fortified, and most ornate city in the world. It was right on the Euphrates River. A constant source of water never failed. The city was so big that it had four walls, four-walled portions. And how big were the walls? 85 feet tall. The walls of the city of Babylon were taller than any building in Riverton by far. And do you know how wide the walls were? 85 feet wide. Herodotus, the historian, tells us that it was like a superhighway on top of the walls of the city, so much so that four chariots could go abreast at the same time. That's how big your walls are. At the north end of the gate, as you came into the city of Babylon, you encountered the Ishtar Gate. I have seen the Ishtar Gate. It is in the museum in Berlin, Germany right now. I've seen it many times. You can't believe your eyes. It's so magnificently beautiful. It's blue. It's got all these animals, three-dimensional, coming right out at you. I can't believe it. It's the very one that Daniel saw every day. The very stones are in Berlin right this minute. You cannot believe it. If you could see it, go online. Look for the Ishtar gates. That was what he saw. And then there was a processional way. The main street of Babylon was a thousand yards long, and every paved stone had this written on them. I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I paved the road of Babylon with mountain stone for the procession of the mighty lord Marduk. To the honor of Marduk, to the honor of Marduk, to the honor of Marduk. So everywhere you are walking, there it is. To the honor of Marduk, to the honor of Marduk, everywhere you walk. And as you look up the walls, that's what it says on all the walls. And besides, they have found to this day 53 different temples in the compound of Babylon. 
One of the temples, the temple to Marduk, occupied 60 acres with 180 open-air shrines on it. And, of course, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there that Daniel saw every day, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Go online and see what the artists believe it looked like. Oh, there's a way to really change your mind. Take you from kind of a river tin and bring you to the most magnificent place that you can't even dream of in the world. It does something to your worldview. And then add to that an Ivy League education with the most brilliant professors in the whole empire to change your way of thinking, expose you to the literature of that society, which much of which included religious stories and prayers to these Babylonian gods, which is what he had to learn and memorize every day, and then add to that, you wine and dine them with the best food you can find anywhere, and then you change their names that believe that were based on their gods and change them into the names of the Babylonian gods, and you have pulled it off. You've completely destroyed everything that they previously had. So you think. Let me try this on you. Let's say this happens to you. One day in your 15 years of age, Dubai comes into America and strips away the best and the brightest of our society, takes them to Dubai. By the way, go on the internet and look at what the buildings of Dubai look like. They're amazing. They take you to one of the wealthiest countries in the world, and they cut off all access to your former way of life. You are immediately immersed against your will into daily Islam classes taught in a magnificent mosque by the most mesmerizing imams in the world. You are fed the finest food and drink that the world has to offer. You are given a new name. Your new name is, my God is Allah, or I am a follower of Muhammad. That's your name. That's your new name. Your clothing is completely changed. You're given endless opportunities in Mercedes-Benz and all kinds of four-wheel drive vehicles for endless fun and opportunity. Ten hours every day, you are in classes learning the Arabic language. Almost all of it is taken directly from the Quran itself. Your former way of life is constantly derided, ridiculed, ignored. And this goes on for three years. And everything that you previously knew was carefully censored and biased. How would you fare? How do you think you'd fare? What would you do? That process, by the way, is called socialization. And it's going on in America today, right now, and it always has. It's not new. How does it take place? It takes place through the media, through the government, through the education, through tech, through big business, through peer pressure, through political correctness, through cancel culture, through religion, through literature, through law, all of those things, all of those things combining together, which the Bible calls the world, all of those combine at the same time to squeeze us into a mold that fits into the dominant culture of America today. The same thing that happened to Daniel 2,500 years ago. So what do you do? You run and hide? You can't. He's a captive. Fight? Good luck. You're dead. What do you do? 
Try to hide, put your head in the sand. Well, there's plenty of sand in the Middle East, but that's not going to help you. What do you do? Let's see what he did. Verse 8, but Daniel. Oh, let's go back. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king then would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Did you see what he did? What did he do first of all? He began with resolve. He, he, he drew a line in the sand. Now, why did he draw the line over food? Well, I would have drawn the line over, I'm not going to learn Babylonian witchcraft or occult or astrology. I, 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 I draw the line there. But they didn't draw the line there. He says, I'm not going to hang around the, 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 the harem where all the pretty women are. Didn't draw the line there. So I'm going to draw the line with food. Because the Jewish people believed that God had given them a special food laws that identified them as followers of the true and living God. And besides, the Babylonians offered their food, their meat, their wine to the Babylonian gods. And the Jewish people resolved we would not do that. And so what did Daniel do? Well, he didn't just say, hey, hey, Ashpenaz, go take a hike. We're going to do what we want to do. No, he didn't do that at all. Did you see what he did? He asked the chief official for permission. That was his manner. And then he said, please, please test your servants for 10 days. He said, give us a test, and it's limited in scope. And let's just see what happens. And of course, who's behind it? God is. So how does Daniel resist this incredible pressure to conform him into, the, into a Babylonian with the worldview and the lifestyle of the Babylonians? How does he resist it? Well, it began with his biblical roots. Remember, he grew up as a child. He learned as a child. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was probably bar mitzvahed when he was 12. He was a child of the commandments. His parents, under the godly king Josiah, taught their children the word of God. He had deep biblical roots. By the way, statistics tell us today that if you do not have a Christian worldview by the time you're 14 years of age, you will never acquire one. That's sad. But we're so deeply ingrained in the culture in which we grow up that our mindset will constantly drift toward the socialization of the culture. But Daniel's a young man. He has a, he, he, the Bible has been put into him as a child. And now he has a supportive peer group. You see, he's not alone. It's very difficult to stand when you're the only one. But he had a few friends that stood with him. And then he had personal convictions. There's a man named Major Jerry Singleton. He was a prisoner of war in North Vietnam for seven years. 
He described in some detail how the North Vietnamese soldiers attempted to re-educate him and his fellow prisoners. Over a loudspeaker in their room came a constant barrage of propaganda, night and day, with the purpose of trying to change his political ideals. When they asked him how he was able to resist, he replied quietly but firmly that it was because he had Christian convictions and the Lord strengthened him. Did you see how it said? The Lord was behind it, and they had Christian convictions, and then they picked their battles. By the way, there's nothing against the law for Daniel to study the cultic religious literature of the Babylonian people. God never says, don't do that. But God says, identify with me by the food that you eat and don't eat. Take your stand there. And so they did. And then did you see how, they respond, how he responded to, Ari, to Ariok? How? R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Respect. Daniel could have defiantly said to the authorities, we don't obey your rules. But he recognized he was putting his superior in peril. He came up with a reasonable plan, a trial period. He wasn't a jerk because it's not godly to offend people unnaturally or unnecessarily. And we're called to be people who are respectful, even with those who we don't agree with or when we're saying hard things. So it was with Daniel. And then, of course, key to it all was God's favor. And then I would say they pursued excellence. They didn't say, well, God favors us. We're just going to sit back and let God work through us. No, they worked their tails off. They studied hard. And we're going to see what happens. How... How do you as Christian parents respond to the unrelenting, accelerating, powerful pull of of pagan secularization that's taking place in America today? Well, one, recognize the power of it. It's very powerful. Provide a strong biblical foundation for your children. Don't buy into the false notion that the the, the environment necessarily... uh, uh, causes us to be defiled. Don't live in fear. Don't don't try to shelter your children from evil because evil doesn't exist outside of us. It exists inside of us. And never underestimate the power and the protection of God. Well, what happened? Here's how the passage ends. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine, and they they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And vegetables would have included grains here, bread, uh, who love bread. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. Here's their oral exam. Can you imagine? In front of the most powerful person in the world. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magician and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is quite a few years later. 
So what did God do? There was a noticeable difference in them because God worked. They excelled in everything they did. And when they had the oral examination in front of the King Nebuchadnezzar, they mega excelled. Why? Because God was with them. The impact was physical. They were stronger. They, the, the impact was such that when people looked at them, they said, what? What happened to these people? Why do they look so good? They're, the impact was intellectual. They were smarter. The impact was spiritual. The impact was social. The impact took place over a long period of time because those who honor God with our convictions, God will honor. Well, I hate to say this, but pagan secular socialization is happening to all of us every day in myriad ways. And we Christians and Christian churches are falling like flies. Why? Because we're not following Daniel. We're not availing ourselves of the incredible resources we have available to us in God's word, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit. But we can. When I was a child, and I I hope there are a few of you, I, I, I went to Sunday school as a child, and I was blessed to have a very good biblical background from my parents and from our church. And from Awana, I was in Awana. And one of the songs we sang was a very simple children's song called Dare to Be a Daniel. Any of you ever sing that song? Please put your hands up high. Oh, we're just a few of us. Here's how it goes. Standing by a purpose true, heeding God's command, honor them, the faithful few, all hail to Daniel's band. Then here's the chorus. Sing it with me if you know it. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. You don't know that one. The next line. Many mighty men are lost, daring not to stand. Who for God had been a host by joining Daniel's band. Many giants, great and tall, stalking through the land, headlong to the earth would fall if met by Daniel's band. Hold the gospel banner high unto victory grand. Satan and his hosts defy and shout for Daniel's land. Dare to be a Daniel takes courage. Dare to stand alone, unafraid to be different. Dare to have a purpose firm, convictions. Dare to make it known, a cause. God is calling us these days to be like Daniel. People of courage. People who are unafraid to be different. People who have convictions. and People who live for a cause. And that cause is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our cause. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we live in a a challenging world, but a good world. But it's nothing new to you. Many of our faithful people years ago fed it much worse. And they're faithful believers in this world today by the millions whose lives are so much more difficult than ours. We've got it easy. We've been privileged. And we're falling like flies. Oh, Father, have mercy on us. I pray that you'd create a band of faithful Christ followers in this church who are people of conviction, 
people of your word, people of courage, people who are unafraid, people who have a cause for which to give our lives and live our lives, all because of Jesus who loved us at the cost of his life. Help us to be that kind of people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.